You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Here's a business reason to do the right thing, and you get this you get the ownership and control of data along with it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a recent Maryland case dealing with particularity requirements for cell phone searches. I've got the story of the Federal Trade Commission suing an online data broker over surveillance concerns. And later in the show, my conversation with Chris McClellan from the Data Collaboration Alliance. We're discussing some hefty fines Twitter is faced with in the battle over data privacy. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. All right, Ben, before we jump into our stories, we have a little bit of follow-up here. A listener named Casey wrote in and said, "Uh, Great show, guys. Questions. Once law enforcement obtains data subject to a geofence warrant, for what other purposes, if any, can they use that data? Other investigations? General search inquiries? Also, is that data subject to public disclosure, such as in response to a FOIA request? Ben? What do you think? So the answer to all of those questions is generally yes. <clears throat> and I can see why that would be somewhat disturbing. If you have a valid uh, geofence warrant that's signed by a judge, anything obtained pursuant to that warrant is going to be fair game for law enforcement. Hmm. You don't have to obtain a separate warrant to uh, get information. So you have a geofence warrant. You discover something inherent in that search, maybe XYZ's device was at a particular location at a particular time. Uh, At least as it pertains to that information, you don't have to get any sort of separate judicial authorization. Now, Hmm. if you wanted to search their device, that's a separate question. Hmm. And you'd need, as we're going to talk about in our next story, a search warrant. Okay. Um, In terms of whether this is discoverable via FOIA, uh, there are certain limitations. I'm not a FOIA expert by any uh, stretch of the imagination. (laughs) There are limitations on uh, what qualifies under FOIA uh, that can be released as as public information. Hmm. 
I think uh, unless this jeopardizes an active criminal investigation or national security investigation, this is probably something that you could at least get information on the search itself via FOIA. Hmm. Uh, Again, a lot of these geofence warrants are coming from state courts. Every state has their own version of FOIA. Uh, So I think we think of FOIA as a federal statute, um, but many of the cases that pertain to geofence warrants are from state courts. Hmm. Uh, So I don't know every state's rule uh, as it relates to the sensitivity of documents available under freedom of information requests. Come on, Ben. I know, I know. I got to do some more half-assed internet research. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I I do think at least the general information about the search itself uh, would be discoverable under FOIA unless it falls under some sort of public safety, national security exception. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Casey, for writing in. Uh, We would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. All right, Ben, let's jump into our stories here. Why don't you kick things off for us? So my story comes from a Twitter account that covers uh, Maryland appellate court cases. Talk Hmm. about a niche interest. (laughs) Uh, But certainly for me, I'm I'm an active follower. (laughs) You're on the edge of your seat. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So I was uh, very intrigued by a case that came out this past week called Richardson v. State of Maryland. Hmm. So Mr. Richardson was caught in a fight. Uh, a brawl that broke out in the back of a school in rural Maryland. Hmm. Uh, and this is a state of Maryland court case in, in Maryland state court. So we got into a brawl. Uh, officers got involved, public school, uh, public school safety officers. He had a backpack, and he threw his backpack to the ground uh, in the course of this fight. Uh, he tried to dive for the backpack. Uh, law enforcement dove for the backpack as well. And Mr. Richardson, unfortunately for him, lost out to law enforcement. So hmm. they had the backpack, and he didn't. Uh, He decided to flee the scene, probably a wise decision. Hmm. Uh, He left without his backpack, and uh, he escaped from police for the time being. So law enforcement, incident to what would have been an arrest, so they didn't get the chance to arrest him, but they would have arrested him, searched his backpack and discovered that there were three cell phones in there along with a firearm. Hmm. And they had reason to believe that Mr. Richardson had been involved in a previous armed robbery. So they went to the Maryland Circuit Court and got uh, applied for and obtained a warrant for literally everything on his cell phone. Uh, and I'll read the language of what was going to be seized here because it gets to the breadth of uh, what the what law enforcement was looking for and what at least the lower court allowed them to look for. Hmm. So the warrant authorized the officers to search for, quote, all information, text messages, emails, phone calls, incoming and outgoing – Pictures, video, cell site location, data and or applications, geotagging, metadata, uh, metadata, contacts, emails, voicemails, oral and or written communication, and any other data stored or maintained uh, inside the phone. So that's pretty much everything. The whole enchilada. <laughs> yeah, pretty much everything uh, besides your notes application. Okay. And I'm sure they could have gotten access to that too. Right. Uh, they, if they wanted to know your Panera orders, um, that would have been there for the taking. <laughs> right. There was also no temporal limitation on the search. Hmm. Uh, So this was any uh, of those types of communications that I just mentioned going back basically in perpetuity. Right. Uh, You could collect any of them. Hmm. So the Maryland Court of Special Appeals, the intermediate court, upheld the constitutionality of the search. uh, And Mr. Richardson appealed to 
the Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in Maryland, and they said that this type of search violates the Fourth Amendment and equivalent case law uh, here in Maryland. Hmm. The Fourth Amendment says that in order for there to be a constitutional uh, search, in order for there to be a reasonable search, you have to allege some type of particular thing that you are going to search or seize. So the reason we have a Fourth Amendment is because, uh, not to get too historical here, in the British colonies, they used to do these things called general— they used to have these things called general warrants. Right. Where a king would send his minions to gather any uh, contraband they could find in in somebody's house. So like a fishing expedition. Exactly. Uh, And that was very offensive uh, to our founding fathers. Uh, In the colonies, those were referred to as writs of assistance, uh, and they were very disfavored. It's one of the reasons why uh, our uh, founding fathers came up with the Fourth Amendment. Hmm. So we have this, as a result, we have this particularity requirement. You have to describe either the things that are going to be seized or the person that's going to be searched. Uh, And this, according to the Maryland Court of Appeals, does not allege any sort of particularity. In fact, it is as far from particularity as you could possibly find. Hmm. Uh, you, at least in Maryland, according to have a valid constitutional search of somebody's cell phone, while obtaining a warrant, you have to actually describe specific information that you're seeking. So hmm. Richardson's whereabouts on the night of X or his text message communications with so-and-so about this particular event. Right. It can't just be everything on the device. So they're, if they're interested in him for a prior alleged crime, then they would make the case to the judge that we want to— we're looking for information related to this crime. And I think that's basically what they did here. There just was no limiting principle. Uh, huh. I'm not sure how they could have crafted an application, frankly— without being this vague. Because if you're looking for just information about a crime that happened in the past, on a cell phone, that could be anywhere. I mean, it could be in a TikTok or or Snapchat. We don't know how the kids communicate these days. Uh, (laughs) So I I really do think that this might make life a little more difficult for law enforcement because they might not know exactly where to look on a device for information about a specific crime. But at least in Maryland, that's what they're going to have to do. Uh, They're Hmm. going to have to at least have some inkling of where that information might be or just some type of limiting principle. So uh, a limited duration or limited only to text messages or voicemails, uh, et cetera. Let me me ask you this. Does does this principle extend to the real world? In other words, if I got a search warrant to to search this person's home, would I have to say— I want. We want to search uh, the safe that's in the upstairs bedroom under the bed. Or can we just ransack the place? You can ransack the place, but you have to describe in order to obtain a search warrant what you're looking for. So mm. we are looking for drugs. Isn't that what they did here on his phone, though? Yes, uh, but you're also – there are some other limiting principles related to even a home search. You're just uh-huh. searching one home uh, okay. and the duration – just naturally is limited. So it's not like you're going to have officers going in and out for 24-7 or obtaining surveillance footage of everybody going in and out of the house and everything that happened in that house over an extended period of time. Mm. It's limited Mm -hmm. to one instant. Okay. So we don't really see this as much in the physical world. And it gets to the nature of cell phones. They quote the Riley case, Riley v. California, where Chief Justice Roberts says, once again, cell phones are special. 
Yeah. Uh, they contain multitudes of our personal relationships, our religious, political affiliations. Uh, they are more than just a device. And I think that's the philosophy the court is taking here. The hilarious kicker to this story is it actually does not provide any relief for Mr. Richardson himself. Hmm. Uh, and that's because of the good faith exception. So the good faith exception basically says— if law enforcement are acting under a good faith interpretation of what they assumed the law was uh, at the time that they conducted the search, then anything obtained from that search is admissible in court and can be used against a criminal defendant. Hmm. So basically what happened here is they did find incriminating information on Richardson, uh, even though as a principle, the court is saying you can't have a search this broad of a cell phone with no uh, level of particularity, it's okay in this case because law enforcement was acting in good faith. Hmm. We hadn't issued this decision yet, so they didn't know what the status of the law was in Maryland. So you can imagine this whole case is kind of— <laughs> It cool. kind of loops back on itself, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it's just poor Mr. Richardson. It's like this applies to everybody after you, but for your particular search, you're still screwed and you are going to prison. Right. But thanks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure he's very pleased that his case will be foundational in, in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence in Maryland. Wow. Um, but he himself is is going to be locked up. Wow. But I do think it's just a, a really interesting case. I mean, cell phones are such an enigma uh, in all types of Fourth Amendment uh, constitutional cases because they're very hard to pin down. They're not just a thing. It's not just a piece of paper in your house. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's almost more just part of your body. I mean, it's so foundational to who we are and how we operate in modern society. Right. Uh, and I think that's exactly what the court was uh, getting at in, in this opinion. Uh, and for future cases in Maryland, you're not going to be able to just say, Give me the phone and let me search everything and see if I can find some incriminating information, even if I'm searching from text message archives from 2015. Uh, I That's not going to fly in Maryland anymore. What about at the federal level? I mean, are, is this a, an area where we're still looking for some clarity or, or does the Riley decision provide that? So the Riley decision simply says that the government has to obtain a warrant to search a cell phone. They can't simply seize a cell phone uh, and search it incident to arrest without obtaining a separate warrant. Hmm. Here, in this case, they actually obtained a warrant. So hmm. Riley is controlling in the sense that they did have to obtain a warrant, but this is about what has to be contained in the warrant itself. I see. Uh, this is only applicable right now in the state of Maryland, but it could be persuasive to other state court systems uh, and to federal courts about coming up with some sort of limiting principle related to the particularity requirement in these types of searches. Hmm. Uh, so judges are always speaking to one another in their judicial decisions. Uh, and what that means is some judge in another state is going, if they get a case like this, they're going to look at the lay of the land and see what other states have, have done, hmm. what other state courts have done. And so now we have what seems to be a pretty foundational case uh, in this area of the law, and it could be something that state courts and eventually federal courts uh, come to adopt. Hmm. Uh, if you are a criminal in a uh, state that is not Maryland, uh, I would— I would <laughs> So prison company excluded. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so me and you are, are going to have to be a little bit more careful. For everybody else uh, in the other 49 states, it, it still means that law enforcement theoretically could uh, obtain a warrant and search anything on your phone. Hmm. 
um, it's this is really limited to the one jurisdiction in which it was uh, decided. So let me ask you this. I mean, uh, sort of a side question for my own curiosity. Are there are there U.S. states that are more influential when it comes to these sorts of things than others? Do the feds look at whatever, the the population, the professionalism, the history of, of you know, does California have more sway than Mississippi or does it come into play at all? It does. Um, there are certain courts just by their nature, by their history, uh, are looked at as uh, – kind of carrying an, an extra. We talked about the Delaware Chancery Courts mm, in a previous mm-hmm. episode as it relates to disputes among large corporations. That's one example of a court that is a greater among equals uh, mm. in terms of its peer states. In terms of state court systems, I'm not necessarily sure that Maryland state court system is revered above its peer states. I will note, and this might just be a coincidence, it might be our proximity to D.C., it might be that we have a lot of criminals. Uh, a lot of <laughs> a lot of crime shows are based in Baltimore, yeah. uh, so that might have something to do with it. A lot of the surveillance law cases, uh, these types of cases, have come through the Maryland court system. Hmm. A disproportionate amount. It's something I've noticed in just doing research, hmm. uh, and I don't know if there's a good reason for it. Uh, I don't want to disparage any of my Maryland colleagues. I'm sure they're they're great judges, great attorneys. They're writing great briefs and, and great opinions. Um, but it could just be a coincidence that uh, Maryland has kind of taken a lead in jurisprudence on surveillance issues. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, we will have a link uh, to that in the uh, show notes there. Uh, my story this week, uh, interesting development. Uh, I- I'm linking to a-, a story from the New York Times by Natasha Singer. And this is about how the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has sued an organization uh, over – their uh, tracking data that they say the FTC claims could expose folks who are doing things like visiting abortion clinics, visiting healthcare places, uh, all homeless shelters, that sort of thing. Um, the, the FTC has sued a company called Kochava, uh, which is a data broker, and they're saying that the company's sale of geolocation information on tens of millions of smartphones could expose people's private visits to places like abortion clinics and domestic violence shelters. Um, this covers something that we've talked about here plenty of times. I mean, we, we talk about how, you know, if you're tracking someone's individual mobile device, the chances are, if I know where you live and where you work, I can nail down what device is yours. Right, exactly. And once I've done that, that's the ball game. I can try, if, if I have access to the, that data, your location data, I can pretty much track wherever you go and, and know that it's you with a high degree of certainty. Um, and so the FTC is going after this company uh, claiming that they make it too easy for people to do exactly that. Um, can we unpack this here? I mean, start with some basics here. Why the FTC? So the FTC has jurisdiction over consumer protection issues, mm. and this is related to consumer data privacy, uh, and the enforcement arm is the FTC. Additionally, President Biden, I think sometime in July after the Dobbs decision, uh, drafted an executive order calling for uh, a federal crackdown on companies such as this one uh, that have loose privacy protocols related to reproductive rights. Um, So sensitive health data, uh, anything that 
uh, involves digital surveillance related to reproductive health care services. The executive order is intended to hold these companies accountable that aren't uh, particularly strict with this information and aren't protecting consumer data. Um, the FTC has jurisdiction um, because uh, this is a consumer protection issue. Hmm. And so the FTC filed suit against this company. Uh, how does that play out? What, is that, what does that actually mean? What do they have the power to do? So the FTC can do a number of things. Uh, they are empowered to issue civil sanctions. Uh, in some circumstances, they could issue criminal penalties. Uh, usually, there is some sort of negotiation between the FTC and the company uh, for some sort of equitable solution where the company would pay a fine for having uh, these types of deceptive consumer practices or practices that made uh, the sensitive consumer data available. Uh, so they pay a fine over it. They'd promise to uh, take certain proactive steps to protect consumer data, stop what they're doing, and that would be part of some sort of settlement. Hmm. Uh it depends on how much this company, which I believe is uh, based in Idaho, yep. and is somewhat of a smaller company compared to some of the big tech cases we've seen. Mm. I don't know how small it is, but um, it's not one of the big five, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a digital marketing and, and analytics firm. But it depends on how much really they want to contest this issue if and when it makes it into court. The FTC has uh, a lot of Enforcement tools is at, at its disposal, uh, and by initiating this lawsuit, they're showing their seriousness and how much they want to protect this data. And we're not talking about an insignificant number of records here. I think according to the FTC complaint, uh, they obtained something like 61 million uh, unique uh, location uh, or user location data tags, right. basically. Right. Uh, so we're talking about a real uh, hefty amount of uh, potentially sensitive data. Uh, so I think it's the FTC bringing this to court saying, uh, if you don't ameliorate these practices uh, of being a broker for the sensitive data, uh, then we will bring the full force of the federal government uh, to enforce our laws, to protect our consumers. Now, this article points out that uh, that Kochava filed a preemptive lawsuit against the FTC earlier this month. Um, no, I sue you. You're not <laughs> suing me. I'm suing you. Yeah. That's right. You can't fire me because I quit. I quit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 so they're saying that they've they've done nothing wrong. That they're com they've um, complied with all the laws. Uh, they say that uh, the location data comes from third party information brokers who say consumers consented to the data collection. Well, of course they did. I mean that that's. I mean, that's the EULA, right? That's right. somebody using a flashlight app and and having their Agreed. location tracked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we see this frequently. There are suits and countersuits. Sometimes you sue somebody in anticipation that they're going to sue you. Mm -hmm. Not to get too much into civil procedure, which bores everybody except a except very you. nerdy <laughs> bunch of law professors. <laughs> right. uh, but those claims are consolidated into a single case. So I if it's see. the same parties— and the claim relates to the same set of facts or, or incidents, it'll be one case. Mm -hmm. um, but there could potentially be a counterclaim against the FTC uh, from this company uh, involved in the case. So at least theoretically, the company could get some type, some type of relief from the FTC for, 
I don't know, harassing them or hmm. subjecting them to uh, unjust civil or, or criminal penalties, something like that. Huh. Uh, but I think more likely it's the FTC that would win some type of injunction to force this company to improve its practices or to levy some type of fine uh, on them to make them comply. So how does this play out on the larger stage of privacy protection here? Suppose the FTC is successful. Uh, Is that just something that informs the legislation that could come along? Or does this, is is it something that Supreme Court justices would consider in their own, um, you know, thinking about these sorts of things? Where, Where does it fit in? Good question. I don't think it necessarily would change something like the Supreme Court uh, it's just it, it is a little bit of a niche consumer protection issue hmm. uh, that doesn't really get into constitutional claims. There are going to be constitutional claims on this subject where somebody's prosecuted for getting an abortion and whatever digital surveillance was used, data brokerage, whatever, to gain evidence for that prosecution, there might be a Fourth Amendment claim. I see. That's not what's going on here. Uh-huh. Uh, this could inform uh, Congress if— Congress believes that the FTC is setting some type of new standard here. Congress, in its infinite wisdom, might decide to codify that into law so that a future FTC that wasn't so gung-ho about uh, this type of enforcement wouldn't completely drop the ball and say, yeah, we don't care. We don't have to. Uh, I know you you like to quote Lily Tomlin uh, from that great Saturday Night Live <laughs> right. sketch. Right. Uh, I know you're a fan of that. So. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So I, I think Congress could use this as a jumping-off point for their own data privacy legislation. Now, the timing is a little tough here because these proceedings between the FTC and this company could last a long time. Mm-hmm. You and I have, have talked about this with a number of our guests. I mean, there's a real effort by the end of this calendar year to get some type of federal data privacy law enacted. Hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure if this decision will play out in that legislation, assuming that something gets passed this year. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is something if I cared about, particularly about digital privacy related to reproductive rights, and I saw that the FTC was initiating this enforcement, if I cared about this issue, I would try to codify whatever the FTC says is the violation uh, into a statute so that a future FTC run by commissioners of one's political enemies uh, doesn't immediately reverse and say, actually, this type of data collection is acceptable. I see. Wow. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes as well. Uh, Of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, please do email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership 
while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Chris McClellan. He is the director of operations at a nonprofit called the Data Collaboration Alliance. And our conversation uh, centers on the recent $150 million settlement between Twitter and the FTC, <laughs> FTC heavy show today, yeah. uh, resolving charges that, uh, that Twitter uh, misused personal data over a period of about six years to help sell targeted ads. Here's my conversation with Chris McClellan. The Data Collaboration Alliance is a registered nonprofit organization. It's based in Canada, uh, but it has a global outlook. And its its mission is really to advance two things simultaneously. The, the first is to support the data management technologies, protocols, frameworks, and standards that help organizations and people get control of data. Uh, and that's our primary objective. Right now, data is far from controlled for reasons we can probably get into. But uh, as far as a mission goes, control is the first. But control is not the end game of our mission. The control is just the starting point. What control leads to is, in, in our worldview, collaboration. Once people have agency and ownership over their information and organizations have agency and ownership of their information, it will lead to more and better and more frequent collaboration on data, on data that is largely uncopied. In principle, the way we approach data management and what needs to be done in that realm is similar to how societies already do things to to protect things like um, money and intellectual property in that we make it difficult to copy those things in order to preserve their value. So again, our worldview is that if we all agree that data has value, both personal and organizational data, then maybe we ought to stop copying it. And uh, and so that leads to, like I said, the our support and our advocacy for new standards, protocols, and technologies that either very much reduce or minimize the use of data or even eliminate copies altogether. You know, I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people have a, a certain sense of resignation when it comes to how their data is being distributed and shared and, you know, the the various EULAs that we have to click through to get to the services that we want. What sort of things are you advocating here to help us get better control of this? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right in saying that the situation is deeply asymmetrical right now. Uh, as an end user of an application, you log in, and once you do that, you'll be asked for a consent to sign a consent form or a privacy policy, and then off you go. But once you do that, the organization or the developer or whoever owns the app is really in the driver's seat with regard to the data you either contribute or passively contribute through your activities such as clicking on buttons and and on images and videos and stuff like that. At that point, you have very little control over your your information. And the owner of the app has all the control, including the the ability oftentimes to sell it on to third parties or to data aggregators. And so that's 
just on even, you know, I think on surface, that seems like a very unfair equation. And uh, I often describe that as a form of data cooperation, but not collaborate, collaboration. Cooperation means you're, you're, you are working together, but for different goals. <laughs> collaboration means you're working together on the same goal. So when we think about something like Facebook or Twitter, yes, we're cooperating on data. I'm giving them my profile information and my clicks and my likes and my content that I post. But their their objective as a business is very different. It's to sell advertising. And so sure, from a data point of view, we're cooperating, but we're not collaborating. So imagine if that situation was turned on its head where I had full control of the information I contributed to the app and I was granting the app provider, the Twitter, the Facebook, for example, access to it. But I, I would be able to choose when, where, and how I would grant that access. And that access could be for things like, oh, I don't mind, you know, I, I'll grant access to my information to share information with my friends or discover new friends, something like that. But I don't want to grant you access to package my data to sell to advertisers or I don't want to give you my non-anonymized data to advertisers. So that's the sort of situation where when you move from cooperation to collaboration, the power dynamic readdresses itself to what I think most would agree is, is closer to a, a just situation with regard to who's putting what into the uh, situation. And what sort of things would have to be put in place to, to have something like that come to pass? Yeah, well, I can tell you quite readily what needs to go away <laughs> and uh, what needs to go away. What, what's the enemy? So what we're talking about here, really, like I said at the outset, the mission of the Alliance, the first is, 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 is control. And that is a precondition of meaningful collaboration. You can't collaborate on fragmented things, right? So, so what fragments data? Well, there, there's two things that fragment data and, and this is within any, in every application in the world. The first is data silos, like there's an app for everything and a database for every app. And, and so that creates a situation where I say a big bank or something might have thousands of individual databases containing information. So data firstly is fragmented and it's fragmented because we have every time we want to build a new application, we create a new, it contains its own data. And that's sometimes referred to as a, a data silo. And so that's the first problem. The second problem is apps depend on data from other apps. And so what happens is the data from any given app needs to, is, is copied often thousands of times a day routinely and very much under the radar of most human eyes and, and, and that sort of thing because it's done through a process known as data integration. So data integration is really a way of making copies of data between those silos in order to you know, achieve outcomes like I said, like the, the, the truth is that new apps require data from old apps to function. Other times you want to make copies to aggregate data for purposes of like analytics and stuff like that. So the, the two problems here with regard to control are silos and copies. And silos and copies are kind of how you would define IT landscapes today. And I think it's important to point out this, this isn't necessarily or, you know, done because of evil. This is just how technology has evolved. Uh, Oracle deployed the first or made available the first relational database around 1979. A few years later, we started to build applications in this way. And, and you know, we, we, there's no question that we all love apps. Um, apps solve life's little problems. They solve business challenges. So 
apps aren't going away, but how we build apps needs to fundamentally change if we're to introduce that control that we're talking about. Well, let's talk about a, a specific case. There was the the recent case uh, where Twitter was fined by the FTC, or they agreed to a $150 million settlement. Uh, they were misusing some personal data from users. What was going on here? Well, there's a couple of things to unpack here. I, I guess one is just the very simple answer is that people were, users of Twitter were misled in in terms of the terms and conditions and policies that stated how their data, their phone numbers and email addresses were going to be used on surface, or at least uh, as far as anyone was concerned or able to deter, uh, um, determine, it was for operational reasons. But in fact, it was actually also going, that, that data was also going to be used for to supply advertisers with their information so they could be targeted with ads on the platform and possibly elsewhere. So it was sort of... Um, I don't want to call it a bait and switch situation, but it, there was a serious omission of intent of the use of the data that they were collecting. And to some extent, that, that's unforgivable uh, because it's people's phone numbers and email addresses. But I think it um, takes the focus off the real issue, which we at the Data Collaboration Alliance f- focus upon, which is this. So imagine that the same situation that Twitter had got its act together and the policy clearly stated to people that their uh, information was going to be packaged and provided to and sold to data aggregators for advertising purposes. Okay. Um, And let's say some people opted out of that and said, no, I don't want you to do that. Even in that situation, uh, the people that opted out of that, we come back to control. So does that mean that the people who opted out of that, their data would never surface to places they don't want it to? And the answer to that is really no, because just the way complex technology ecosystems and companies as big as Twitter work. As I mentioned earlier, the fact is that data is all copied routinely between uh, databases within Twitter, but also they're part of a bigger data ecosystem of advertisers and partners and suppliers. And data gets integrated, particularly sensitive and customer data, uh, because in a consumer environment or app, customers are kind of at the center of the universe that data gets copied all the time. And so the there's an illusion of control uh, that people might have that or think that companies like Twitter have, when in fact they don't. And um, so I often describe consent forms and privacy policies as largely meaningless for that reason. Do you suppose a settlement like this, $150 million, is... Is that something that gets the attention of, of some of these big platform providers or other folks who are dealing with people's data? I don't think so. Uh, I stopped tracking fines out of Europe under the GDPR regulations uh, about a year ago. I mean, how big is, <laughs> what's the number we're waiting for that's going to change things? Uh, half a billion dollars to Facebook in Ireland? I, I, you know, it it hasn't changed anything. And frankly, these companies can afford to pay these fines and absorb them as a cost of doing business. It, and I, I think the real issue with fines isn't that they're pretty ineffective against the biggest uh, you know, organizations in the world who can afford to pay them, but, it, but more so that they send a very problematic signal to the innovate, innovators of the world, the startups, the companies that are trying to solve problems in, in healthcare and in, in, in civil society and you name it, sustainability. Do we really want an innovation economy that's you know based on a on a playing field of fear 
uh, of fines and breaches rather than one of supportive and, and, and that is really encouraging creative problem solving. And so I don't think fines are the answer. I think what the answer is, is, is encouraging the use of new standards, protocols, and technologies that help address the root causes of data insecurity in the first place, which is, again, at the Alliance, we've identified as silos and copies. And um, I'm sure we'll be able to talk a little bit about some of the technologies and, and frameworks that are addressing that. But for, in my opinion, fines won't change the biggest of companies. And uh, I stopped paying attention to them some time ago. So uh, do we suppose that a regulatory regime is in order here? I mean, are, are we looking for, for example, something in the U.S. at the federal level, you know, a, a GDPR for us? Yeah, well, I think absolutely that some of the uh, ongoing work at the uh, federal level for a national privacy law seems to gain have momentum again, but we have been here before. Um, so it's a little bit wait and see. There does seem to be a bit more wind in the sails this time. I, obviously, a lot of states in the U.S. aren't waiting for that and haven't, such as California, but increasingly others. Utah was recent, Virginia, uh, Maine, you know, so there, these aren't, I wouldn't call them all GDPR equivalent. Uh, I would call California's pretty darn close. But the states are starting to take their own initiative on these things. And so is regulation the answer? It's part of it. Um, but I, I guess on from my side, I'm more excited about the potential for new technologies, new frameworks, new protocols to, to create a win-win situation. So I'll give you an example. One of the uh, frameworks that we support is called zero copy integration. And that word zero copy kind of says what it, uh, you know, gives you a hint at what it's all about, which is the ability to build new applications from, from a platform instead of a database that can support hundreds of applications from the same data and not make copies of it or fragment it. What that means is the controls are, can be the controls you set on who can see the data and do what with it are very easy to enforce universally. You're not having to change those controls app by app by app by app. And, and that gives you a, a sort of a, an idea of what the future holds for data ownership. It's, it's building apps differently. And uh, zero copy integration, which is now in a 60-day public consultation period in Canada, meaning that in about 60 days, it's poised to become a national standard. What it does is provide these sort of six rules in a framework that uh, developers can observe to not only um, provide stop making copies of data and stop fragmenting it in silos, but to give all data stakeholders, end users, partners, uh, you name it, real agency and control of the information by not making copies of it. And the carrot here is that it's a way faster and more efficient way to build new technologies than the old fragmented siloed way. So it's just better for business. And, and that's the sort of standard that get, should get people excited because it's uh, it's not all stick. It's not a fine. It's like here's here's a business reason to do the right thing, and you get this. You get the ownership and control of data along with it. You know, it kind of reminds me of this. Uh, I don't know ongoing fantasy that I've had when it comes to my medical data, which is wouldn't it be great if I could fill it out once, and every time I go to a, a different doctor or a different specialist, just you know, point to that database. Here's me. Here's my medical history, and and. You know, I can authorize you to take what you need and maybe restrict you if, you know, if I'm going to the urologist, that's a different thing than going to the, the allergist. Or, you know, is that along the lines of what we're talking about here? 
Definitely. Now there's different scenarios on how that can play out, but ownership, like, so I always say to people, it's about control. And so long as you have control of something, do you care if you own it? I mean, do you care if your personal information is in a, say, kept in a hospital or in your, on your smartphone, so long as you have control of it. And so I think what we'll see in the future is what will play out as people, you know, are encouraged through regulations and laws, but also through just um, some efficiency outcomes to adopt frameworks like zero copy integration that you'll see uh, startups form, you know, and companies form and data be managed in different ways. So one could be a data wallet that, you know, what you're describing could sit, reside on your phone and that's mm. got all your core medical information and you could grant access to that to a medical service provider or medical insurer. That's one way it could work. Uh, another way is that, you know, that medical insurer um, adopts the framework I was describing, zero copy integration, to build apps where control is possible. Data is not copied. Data is not fragmented. So therefore, when they get, they could grant, pass those controls on to you. And let's read. And, and so your data is physically in their environment, but you're in control of it. And that's so long as you have control. I think someone mentioned to me the other day, would you know, if you gave your your uh, your your ch- your child your car loan the car and an act, a fender bender occurred. Uh, do you care that you own the car or lost control of it at that point? You know, you'd rather have control than ownership. So, so this is really about control. Where the data actually physically resides, I think, can be misleading. But sure, I can imagine decentralized approaches such as advocated by blockchain as well as others uh, that are more centralized, advocated by technologies like dataware and data fabric technology. But at the end of the day, if it delivers control and it supports developers in their ability to de- solve problems, then it should be okay. And, and there, though I mentioned there are a couple of technologies that are helping moving towards that end for sure. Is there a particular timeline that, that you and your colleagues there at the Data Collaboration Alliance feel like we should be on here? That's a really good question. Um, there's different, depends who you are in some respects. I mean, I'm uh, of a certain age and my data's out there and I was an early adopter of digital technologies. So when it right. comes to control and ownership of my information, I think the horse has left the barn. Um, it's out there and I can I've, I can find it and I know it's out there. Uh, and I've let it be out there to a lot of extent. Um, I think it's much more poignant when you start to talk about children and uh, and children's data. And I think we're seeing a lot of negative outcomes of people misusing children's data on social media in particular. So the urgency, I think, is around as apps become embedded in the lives of our children, sometimes as young as three or four years old, I think the urgency has been with us for some years now that we need to figure this stuff out. Otherwise, um, we're really enabling a whole generation to be targeted with weaponized information for the rest of their, for their entire lives. And I don't think that's a situation any of us want to see or support. So it's an interconnected world. So it doesn't take everyone to jump. It just takes important commercial entities like the European Union, United States, or even just California, which remind, let's remind everyone as an economy, I think the 10th biggest in the world or something, in an interconnected world where data knows no boundaries, it, it just takes a few of these jurisdictions to put in truly meaningful data protection legislation to, to change a lot of the world because people aren't going to want to not do business in California or Europe. So that, that's all very interesting and happening. But the timeline to me is yesterday, I suppose. 
Ben, what do you think? Twitter did something wrong? I'm shocked. <laughs> uh, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. One thing that struck out to me early is changing the way we look at these types of cases. Uh, we've looked at them in that it's the consumer uh, accepting the terms and conditions in the EULA, and really all the power is in the hands of the companies collecting the data because they're the ones who write the rules, mm. and we're just the ones clicking accept. Mm-hmm. I think what the guest is talking about is reorienting that relationship so it's the consumer that has more active control on the data that he or she wants released. It's kind of a nudge approach where if you just switch incentive structures, that might be the most simple way to put more power in consumer hands uh, just by making it consumer-centric and not about what the company wants to protect and what they're trying to sneak by you through some of these EULAs. Hmm. Uh, So I thought that was a really interesting element to the conversation. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Chris McClellan. He is from the Data Collaboration Alliance. We do appreciate him taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. our show we want to thank all of you for listening the caveat podcast is proudly produced in maryland at the startup studios of data tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies our senior producer is jennifer iben our executive editor is peter kilpie i'm dave bittner and i'm ben yellen thanks for listening